When you look at the public lands that we own as a nation, which comprise about 20% of our national land base, they are quite literally the anvil upon which the character of this nation was hammered out. The public lands in, in America are the backyard of the little guy. They're not the playground of the rich and famous. And for those of us who love the outdoors and who love to hunt and fish or hike or just to be in nature with our families, I think it's one of the, the great benefits of being an American. Hey folks, I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast that showcases America's leading problem solvers and the innovative strategies that are sustaining the long-term health of the planet. Today, I'm talking to Chris Wood, president and CEO of Trout Unlimited, a major nonprofit that safeguards our nation's fisheries, waters, and the surrounding ecosystems. Some of my most engaging podcast conversations have centered around the importance of preserving and enhancing our natural assets. As a reminder, this term refers to the invaluable benefits that the environment provides to all Americans. Chris and Trout Unlimited recognize this collective interest and have upended traditional conceptions of conservation by including everyone, all communities, regardless of political ideology, in their restorative efforts. The organization employs some of the nation's most innovative scientists and uses this expertise to ensure that our rivers, lakes, and streams can be enjoyed for generations to come. And under Chris's leadership, he's ushered in an era of incredible growth at Trout Unlimited. So I'm excited to hear more about the origin stories. Let's get started. Thanks for joining me. Connor, it's good to, good to be with you. And how's your day going so far? It's going great. You know, right now the shad are in the Potomac River, and I start out every morning by uh, taking folks out and fishing for these awesome fish that migrate from Florida to Canada and then stream up rivers on the East Coast to spawn. And this is a rare conservation success story. I mean, there's a lot of conservation success stories, but what's cool about the Potomac is, you know, shatter down to 5% of their historic levels along the Atlantic seaboard, you know, from overfishing and pollution and all the yeah. other sins that have harmed fisheries across America. But the Potomac, which basically lost its shad 30, 40 years ago, they began a restoration effort back in 95, and, and based on that effort and the strength of the Clean Water Act, we have a very abundant shad run in the Potomac, and it's been a true privilege of mine to be able to take people out to enjoy Beautiful. that fishery, and I did that this morning. For folks who are not on the eastern seaboard or in the mid-Atlantic, I can attest that this morning was probably the perfect day to be out on the Potomac. It's a gorgeous day here in our nation's capital. Yes. Well, let's start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from originally? So I grew up in, in New Jersey. My father's side of the family, they were fifth generation. Newark, New Jersey. Granddad actually grew up on a, on a farm on what is now the Newark Airport. <laughs> <laughs> and dad was the first to get out of Newark. And I went to high school in Jersey City and college in Vermont and have now lived in D.C. for, yikes, 30 years. So you... you Go to Middlebury for college, right? I went to Middlebury, yes. And were you always certain that you had a, your career, your calling would be in the great outdoors? No, not, not at all. No, we, <laughs> um, I grew up in a very sports-oriented family. My dad, my dad who sadly passed away in August, he went to Georgetown on a basketball scholarship. 
And so, you know, I was a football, basketball, baseball kid. Yeah. Uh, sports in the outdoors weren't a part of our life other than to throw a ball in. <laughs> right. But when I went to Middlebury, I got in uh, this awesome program called the Big Brother, Little Brother, Big Sister, Little Sister program. Sure. I think at the time it was run by, I think it was run by the Boys and Girls Clubs of America. And, um, you know, basically they try to find, in this case, a young adult to help mentor a child that might not have a dad or might have special needs. And in my case, I had a special needs kid who, whose therapist thought that fishing would be a, uh, an effective form of therapy for him. And he probably had, you know, and you know, back then I don't think we had ADHD, but it probably had, sure. probably had ADHD. He was a great kid. And uh, so we used to love to fish together. And that's how I, that's how I ended up getting in fishing was so I went out and got a fly rod or spinning rod and we used to fish all the creeks and rivers around the Middlebury area. That's awesome. You still hear stories of outdoors activities in general, but fishing in particular, as a therapeutic practice in a lot of uses these days. It's, it's so true, Connor. There's a great organization called Project Healing Waters that uses fly fishing as a form of therapy for wounded veterans. Mm -hmm. uh, we have something called the Service Partnership where we work with veterans, but also first responders, many of whom have gone through a lot of trauma, especially coming out of COVID, where, you know, we give them free memberships and try to welcome them into the TU family. And I'm actually heading in a week or two to Kentucky to go participate in something called Real Recovery, which wow. is a male cancer survivors using fly fishing as a form of therapy. And they all do awesome work. I mean, anybody who has fished, understands especially the therapeutic power of moving water. There's, yeah. there's something therapeutic about just being outside in nature and on the water, but there's something powerful about the notion of moving water taking away trauma. Trout Unlimited, my organization, we're basically the volunteer base for all these different organizations that are sure. using uh, fishing and, and time outside as a form of therapy. That's amazing. Before we get to talking about Trout Unlimited, I want to just set the stage a little bit. So you, you graduated from Middlebury, and much of your career you spend in the public sector. Paint a picture of what you were doing before you got to Trout Unlimited. So from a, you know, a sort of professional perspective, I, I realized based on a trip to Alaska, which is another story which I, we can talk about if you'd like, that I really wanted to dedicate my life to saving salmon. And I'll never forget... I own a couple of suits. I was married in one, and I have officiated at a couple of weddings in another. But I have a third one that I wore 33 times at informational interviews trying to get the job with a conservation group here in D.C. before a really great guy at American Rivers, uh, the former general counsel, Tom Cassidy, said, I'll make a deal. I'll give you a great internship, and the pay is zero, but you'll get great work. And so I did that for 18 months, and I never wore a suit again unless I was officiating at a wedding or, or participating in a wedding. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I started my career with the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, they manage a, a massive amount of public lands in the western United States, about 272 million acres of, of land that these are called multiple-use public lands. And so... Uh, you know, there's everything from mining and, and timber harvest and recreation, 
occurring, but they're also trying to protect the ecological integrity of that land base. And yeah. I had the privilege of working for the fellow who was the acting director of the agency, a man named Mike Dombeck. And Mike had the opportunity to go over to the Forest Service and become the, they call the person who runs the Forest Service the chief. There's a funny story about that. My brothers, when I went over to work for the chief of the Forest Service, they had a card made for me that called me Medicine Man because nobody really knew exactly what I did. But, <laughs> uh, but I went over to work with Mike at the Forest Service on policy and communications work. And it was a really exciting time, a very fun time. And Forest Service is a great agency. They manage about, about 190 million acres of national forests. And interesting connection to my current job, there's almost a direct overlay of their wilderness and otherwise uh, undeveloped areas called roadless areas and the places where the nexus of the best trout and salmon habitat in the country. And so one of the really exciting things that we did at the Forest Service was that we proposed and then finished or promulgated a regulation that protects about 60 million acres of publicly owned land, land that we all own as a, a birthright from development, especially road yeah. construction and most forms of timber harvest. And 21 years later, that uh, regulation remains in effect. I think it's one of the signature achievements of the Forest Service. For the average American whose awareness of the Forest Service is the signs they see when they're driving into the forest, <laughs> or who have almost no concept of, of actually what the Bureau of Land Management does day to day, but how would you explain their duty, their role in America to the average person? It's such a great question, Connor. You know, growing up in New Jersey, we had state land, but we didn't have any BLM land, Bureau of Land Management land, and there were no national forests in New Jersey. So I would get these questions at the Thanksgiving dinner table from my brothers who were, you know, working in cybersecurity or investment banking. And my dad, who <laughs> was also kind of questioning what his second oldest son was doing for a living. But when you look at the public lands that we own as a nation, which comprise about 20% of our national land base, they are quite literally the anvil upon which the character of this nation was hammered out. Uh, yeah. Egypt has its pyramids. Africa has the Serengeti. Europe has its massive cathedrals and tremendous museums and works of art. What we have is this incredible public land base. Now, you know, as, as we've gotten older and wiser, we realize that a lot of those lands were taken by abrogating treaties with indigenous tribes, or even in some cases through conquest. But the fact is that it is one of the things that makes us unique as Americans, that as a birthright, we all share in this incredible public land legacy. I think what we generally try to do as a nation is make sure that, you know, unlike in places like England, where you have to pay incredible rod fees to fish on rivers that are privately owned, the public lands in, in America are the backyard of the little guy. They're not the playground of the rich and famous. And for those of us who love the outdoors and who love to hunt and fish or hike or just to be in nature with our families, I think it's one of the, the great benefits of being an American. Yeah. I do want to hear the story from Alaska. So would you mind indulging yeah, us? Yeah, it, this is 
This is a story that I've told this before, and people who are close to me will, will tell me after I say it, you know, that's not, that doesn't make you look very good. That's not a story you should tell that often. But I'll tell it because it's a funny story. So when I graduated, as, as you said, from Middlebury, I had discovered this love of fishing, and I had ended up really getting into fly fishing. Um, and the difference for those listeners who might not know is when you spin fish, you're basically casting the weight of a lure. But when you fly fish, you're casting the weight of the line and it's very rhythmic. And the reason I love it so much is that many days you'll, you'll fish and you won't actually catch many fish. And there's something magical about casting this line and putting it exactly where you want it that makes it a little more meaningful even if you're not catching fish. And you can, it's almost a uh, cathartic thing. You can kind of fall sure. into a, a certain Zen magic to it. And so anyway, I, uh, my buddy Mickey was, uh, Mickey Kelly was bartending in Homer, Alaska, and he asked me to come out and visit it. And at the time I was, uh, I'd graduated and I was coaching high school football and making ice cream and bartending and, uh, you know, putting my liberal arts degree to good use, basically. And Sounds South like a Jersey career. Yeah. yeah, that's right. In New Jersey, in South Orange, New Jersey. So anyway, I went to Alaska and Mickey was living on the Homer Spit, which is basically a rocky beach. And one evening, Mickey suggested, hey, Woody, which was my nickname, why don't you take my car and you can drive down to the Kenai Peninsula, uh, which is near Anchorage, and you can fish for silver salmon, which we're running. And I said, that's a great idea. I've, I've never caught a salmon before. And so I drove out uh, the next day to the Kenai Peninsula and set my tent up and went to bed. And I was camping on the beach and the ocean was far away, you know, long ways away. And so I woke up at around three in the morning with the tide coming, lapping into my tent. And... The problem wasn't the water or my wet sleeping bag. The problem was that I had parked the car, Mickey's car, in front of the tent. Anyway, I ended up moving all my stuff back. Mickey's car got a little wet. A good Samaritan towed the car off the, out of the, the wet, took me to town. I bought four cans of gum out, CRC and other engine cleaners. And that, that little VW Rabbit was never cleaner than when I finished with it <laughs> because of all this drama. I didn't start to fish until around four in the afternoon. And I started at the mouth of the Anchor River and I started to walk up the edge of the river. And uh, I started to see all these dead and dying fish. And, and these weren't small fish. These were really big fish. These were king salmon, what they call in Alaska or we call Chinook down here. And they kind of had these grayish gradations and they just looked sick. And I remember taking my fly rod and our fly rods are typically about nine feet. And so I just kind of poked it. This one fish that was in the shallow and I watched it, you know, sort of like shimmy more dead than alive out into the water column. And I thought to myself, I can't believe that I finally got to Alaska and somewhere upstream, a train derailed and dumped a bunch of acid or chemicals into the river, which is deforming and killing these fish. And so I walked a little further up the river. I never once set foot in that river. I walked upstream and I saw a guy casting. And I just stood behind him, watching him. And after a while, he looks back at me and he says, what? What? What are you, what are you looking at? I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm fishing. I'm, I'm fishing. And I said, aren't you worried about 
whatever killed all these fish getting on you and making you sick? And the guy was like, what? I said, yeah, did you see all the dead fish in the shallows? And he said, yeah, dude, those are salmon. That, that's their deal. And so I walked back to Mickey's car and I went to the Anchorage Public Library and I got uh, two books on salmon and I discovered these fish have this incredible life history where they, they will leave the fresh water after a several year period and go out into the ocean, have these tremendous migrations, you know, around North America. And then after a few years, they'll come back and they'll gain a lot of fat. They're an important nutrient for things like orca whales. But they'll come back after a few years and they'll enter that freshwater system and they'll go back to the very river they were born in, back to their natal habitat. They have sex one time and then they die. And, and their decomposing bodies provide the nutrients that keep these systems intact, keep eagles alive, keep bears alive, keep indigenous people alive who have relied on the salmon culture for millennia. Yeah. And by firelight that night, I wrote my letter of resignation from the ice cream factory. So you quit the ice cream parlor over salmon. Where'd you go from there? I got back on a Sunday night late and uh, dad came down on Monday morning, you know, and I was sitting at the kitchen table reading the paper and dad says what every father should say to a, you know, 24 year old or whatever it was at the time, you know, who's not at work on a Monday. What the hell are you doing here? <laughs> and um, I said, dad, uh, I quit my job. You know, I'm not going to make ice cream anymore. And my dad was a very colorful man. I'm not going to tell you exactly what he said, but uh, it was along the lines of what are you going to do for a living? And it turned out that day in the New York Times, above the fold, there was a picture of a guy named Keith Edwards, who was a fish and wildlife service biologist. And he was kneeling next to a lake. And the caption in the photo said, uh, it saddens me that I work at a lake that's named for a fish that doesn't return anymore. And that was the year that one sockeye salmon traversed 750 miles from the ocean back to Redfish Lake and the Sawtooths, only to find that there were no female fish to spawn. And it was the saddest thing I had ever heard. And I pointed to the picture in the newspaper and I said, Dad, I'm going to save the salmon. And again, I won't tell you what my father said in response to that, but... The reason this story is, is so important to me is that I go to work every day with the sentiment that I will save the salmon. And when I say I, I mean the royal I. I mean the yeah. 330 staff at Trout Unlimited, the you know 400 chapters that we have, the 300,000 members and supporters that collectively, we as a nation will have the will to save the salmon. That's a beautiful story. Yeah, it's, 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 it's sort of my origin story. <laughs> yeah. Well, so we've got your origin story. Give us, give us the Trout Unlimited origin story because it is a historic organization in America. Yeah, it's a super cool organization. It was founded in 1959 on the banks of an, the Osable River in Michigan. And, you know, that was, it was right at the advent of the environmental era in America when people like Rachel Carson and Aldo Leopold were sort of signaling this clarion call about, hey, we're we're fouling the nest a little bit here. And so rivers in Michigan in particular, where we had a lot of industrial development, a lot of steel, a lot of automotive, a lot of stuff was happening there. They were getting polluted. This was before the Clean Water Act. So chemicals were being straight piped from the factories right yeah. into the river. And so that was killing the native trout there. And the state was 
trying to mask that degradation, the habitat degradation, by pumping out ever more of these so-called hatchery fish. And these are fish that they raise in concrete tanks by the thousands. It's a completely non-natural environment. And then they just dump them into rivers and streams to try to satisfy anglers and basically hide the fact that these rivers and streams are no longer able to sustain life. Yeah. But at least they're satisfying people who want to fish. And these, these were people like George Griffith, who was a salesman, Art Newman, who had a rod manufacturing company uh, in his front yard, that, that who's a small business owner. Uh, the president of AMC Motors, believe it or not, was one of our original founders. And they said, let's create an organization. And they modeled it on our partners at Ducks Unlimited. Mm-hmm. In fact, sitting behind me on the wall is the philosophy of Trout Unlimited, which was written by Art Newman. And he says, I won't read the whole thing, but part of what he wrote in here was that it's subscribing to the proposition that what's good for trout is good for trout fishermen, and that managing trout for the trout rather than for the trout fishermen is fundamental to the solution of our trout problems. It's appreciating our trout, respecting fellow anglers, and giving serious thought to tomorrow. And that essentially is how we uh, still operate, you know, all these years later. And just really the thing that is so amazing about this organization is the dedication of our volunteers all around the country who, who were doctors, who were waiters, who were mechanics, who were, you know, they're just doing their thing, but they give back in so many ways. We typically average around 800,000 hours in volunteer community service to make the places that we live and love better. And it's, it's an awesome organization to be associated with. It's an incredible history. I mean, if you had to do the elevator pitch today, you guys do so much, but how, how would you summarize kind of the operation of Trout Limited in 2023? We do four basic things. We protect the best quality waters because fish can't live in isolated systems, especially in climate change where you have drought and flood and fire and fish have to move in response to that. We reconnect these systems by removing obsolete dams, by fixing perched culverts, by trying to reform Western water law to create more incentives for landowners to leave water and stream. And then the final part of what we do is we restore rivers and streams. So fish can move through these connected systems. The protected areas are often in the headwaters. That's where the coldest, cleanest water comes from. These are your high elevation areas. They're often public lands. And then the lower elevation areas is where we do a lot of our restoration. These are historically the most biologically productive portions of the landscape that were developed first. And and so we, we bring back that biological productivity. And then if those three things represent the biological mission of the organization, the social imperative is to sustain that work over time. And so that's why we make major investments in volunteer leadership, youth education, and things like the service partnership that I discussed earlier. That's awesome. It's a much bigger organization today than it was when you even first joined. Oh, yeah. If we talk about it all the time in business, the hockey stick, but you've had your own version of that. I'm curious how you'd explain that. Yeah, right on, Connor. I mean, you've got it. The hockey stick is an apt analogy, even if it is a little overused. <laughs> so when I started at TU, we had 30 employees. We were an $8 million budget annually as an organization, and 22 of the 30 employees were at the headquarters office here in Arlington. Contrast that with today, 
you know, we're looking at about $104, $105 million budget next year, about 330 employees, and we have a whopping total of 28 in the national office. So we've grown the national office by six, and we've grown the field capacity by about 330 or so. Our whole model is we put our people where our volunteers and the trout are. So yeah. we keep a really lean kind of corporate presence, but a very robust field presence because that's where trout and salmon are. And to get to your question about how we achieve that growth, essentially we do four things. I just mentioned we protect, reconnect, restore, and sustain rivers. That's, that's all we do. Uh, we don't gadfly issues. We're not a look at that squirrel. Hey, there's a shiny object. Like We just don't do that. We stay laser focused on the things that we're good at and money flows to things that people want. And we even get support from folks who don't fish because when you protect a headwater stream, you're reducing downstream water filtration costs. When you reconnect a river to its floodplain, you're diminishing the energy of the next flood and reducing the risk that the, the bridge downstream will be taken out. Yeah. And when we do this, you know, watershed scale restoration around the country, we're producing thousands of family wage jobs in communities all across America. We had these distinct epochs. We made a strategic decision maybe 10 years ago to become a low cost service provider to state and federal agencies who yeah. have restoration mandates, but who had declining budgets and they weren't filling in behind retiring biologists or scientists. So we became the arms and the legs of many of these state and federal agencies. One of the big changes over the last 10, 15 years under your leadership has been to invest in scientists. And I would love to hear how the decision was made. How did you guys have the foresight to, to do that and why? Yeah, Connor, it's such a good question. You know, it's interesting. We used to talk about being a science-based organization when I first got here. And what that meant was we would take a position on an issue and then go find the science to back up the position. <laughs> Today, we're a science-driven organization. I'm not sure we had a master's level uh, scientist, you know, 21 years ago. Today, we have 54 either PhD or master's level scientists on staff who guide all of our work. They direct our work. Today, we're, we're not science-based, we're science-driven. Yeah. And the reason we made the decision to do this was, aside from a few agencies like the United States Forest Service, which has a very robust research division, and Fish and Wildlife has a strong one as well, but even those parts of those science organizations were shrinking. And they have broad mandates to cover things like atmospheric science and watershed science and climate science and geologic science, et cetera. So we wanted to become the place where state and federal agencies could come, know that we had reliable and respected science and use that science to drive what they were doing as organizations. And I've likened this to the Tom Sawyer approach to conservation when Tom got in trouble for, you know, being an infant terrible, his, his Aunt Polly made him go out and whitewash the fence. And Tom made it appear that he was having so much fun doing that, that eventually he got 11 of his friends to whitewash the fence for him. And he sat under the shade tree sipping lemonade. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're going to sit under any shade trees and sip lemonade, but 
the more that we can make our mission to care for and recover these priority waters across America so that our children will benefit from them to, and engage a diverse community to do that work, instead of leveraging tens of millions of dollars, which is what we're doing today, we'll be able to leverage hundreds of millions, maybe sure. billions of dollars. That was the, the thinking behind the decision to really invest in science capacity. We're kind of a strange organization. You know, we're majority Republican. We have more Republican members than Democrats, and we have a strong number of independent members, people who vote independent or who don't identify. They, they'll vote depending on their view. And those kinds of folks aren't motivated by political arguments or even by passionate arguments. They want to see the science. And so that was another reason that we, you know, we wanted to make a big play, for example, in becoming the climate change adaptation organization. And all I mean by adaptation is helping to make our rivers and streams and landscapes and communities more resilient to the effects of a changing climate. And we knew that back in the, you know, 15 years ago, when you talk about climate change at Trout Unlimited, it was very controversial. But when we started sharing the science about climate change and about the effects on trout and the effects on the, the things that we can do through restoration to make these systems more resilient, our membership came around. And now they're full-throated supporters of that work. And so we knew that we had to have a science basis to do the things that we had to do to be successful. Yeah. You guys seem unique in that you're part of a public, private, civic partnership in real life every single day in these local communities, helping rebuild, helping adapt, helping restore. And I'm curious how that prognosis is looking. I mean, there's there has been some public funding that's been set aside in the last couple of years to do more of this work. And are you guys seeing it? Are you feeling it? Is it our community starting to get optimistic and begin kind of the work alongside you? Or what's that like, that, that kind of crossroads that you guys get to see with all these different partners? We are seeing tremendous progress. You know, these rivers and streams are incredibly resilient. And if you give them half a chance, they will recover. I'm thinking about rivers like the Penobscot in Maine, where a few years ago we took out two dams, bypassed a third. We've seen tremendous increases in so-called anadromous fish, fish that live in the ocean and move back to the freshwater to spawn, shad, herring, alewives, striped bass, even Atlantic salmon, which we haven't seen the bounce we wanted, but we're still seeing a big increase. I think about rivers like the Elwha, where we took out two dams a few years ago. Steelhead, which are basically a sea-run form of rainbow trout, they were functionally extinct for 106 years. Gone. We took those two dams out and went back up and snorkeled those rivers a few years later. There were 300 pairs of steelhead reds up there. 300 reds, that means there were 600 steelhead that had come back. How did they come back? The rainbow trout, the resident rainbow trout, which remained in the system, they recovered their anadromy. They remembered, I can run to the ocean and live there for a few years and get a lot bigger and then come back to my natal stream to spawn. And it's just, you know, in places like the Driftless area of Wisconsin, when the glaciers receded after the last ice age, the unglaciated region of the Midwest was called the Driftless area because it didn't get the glacial drift. And that's like big parts of 
Wisconsin, Minnesota, little parts of Iowa and Illinois. And those driftless streams, that's black earth country, you know, 150 years of intensive agriculture. And, you know, we would go in there, we would find rivers that were incised, meaning the, the river just kept down cutting and down cutting and down cutting because of erosion. And so we go into those systems and pre-restoration, we'll find, you know, 100 to 200 fish per mile. Post-restoration, one year after we go back, peel the uh, slopes of those big steep embankments back to the toe slope of the nearest hill, put the natural bends back in the river, what we call sinuosity, and then reseed the areas with native grasses. We go from 100 to 200 fish per mile to 1,000 to 2,000 fish per mile. It's a remarkable thing. And, and along the way, we're building community. That's the cool part. So in places like the Driftless, we've done about 150 miles of restoration. And we've added about 100 miles of public access for people to go enjoy those fisheries. And these are all private lands, by the way. And so what we do is we go to the farmer say, hey, look, we're going to help you to access support to stop the erosion on your land, to increase the property value, to increase the forage value for your livestock. And in return, we'd like you to consider allowing anglers to access this to fish it periodically. We've opened up over 100 miles of private access water to anglers through those kind of arrangements. And as you said, you know, Connor, we're in a really exciting time right now. The bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act have provided tens of billions of dollars to help make our lands and waters more resilient to the effects of a changing climate and to accelerate restoration. You know, we're really encouraged by that. I mean, we think this is a, it's been described as a once in a generation opportunity to uh, really put restoration on the landscape at scale. A quote that I know you've said jumped to my mind, which was conservation that is most local is most durable. Tell us kind of what you mean by it and how you think about that in, in your work as an organization. It's interesting. I've had this sort of like duality in my career. So when I worked at the Forest Service, we did that roadless rule in 18 months that protected 60 million acres of land in one fell swoop. And just to give your listeners a frame of comparison, it takes the United States Forest Service usually five to seven years to do a forest plan which will cover a million or two acres. In 18 months, we protected 60 million acres in perpetuity. Yeah. But that was not a, it was a lot of sentiment coming from the American people to value their public lands more for their naturalness and their clean water and access to areas to recreate for their families. But it was not what I would call a bottom-up initiative. And yet over time, I've learned that Part of our job is, is not to simply go out and protect a river or to reconnect or restore a river. It's to create the capacity in the community so that we can walk away. The conservation that's most durable is going to be most local. You know, we can walk away knowing that that community will continue this work over time. When those people in that community can see themselves in the role that they played in protecting that monument or, or removing that unneeded dam or replanting a streamside area and watching those trees grow up over time and shade the creek and remembering their kids who were there helping them to plant the trees and going back to those places with their family. 
that, that stuff's not going to change. Nobody's going to be cutting down those trees on that streamside area, not in their lifetime and not in their kids' lifetimes. Right. And I think that's all of our jobs as, as advocates and conservationists is to make sure that we're not only leaving behind a richer land legacy than the one we inherited, but we're, we're creating the capacity in these communities, in our own families and in our networks of friends and in the places we live to encourage more and more restoration and recovery. And so, as you can tell, when I get wound up on this, you know, when I was in high school, I I'd flirted for a while with becoming a Jesuit priest and then puberty kicked in and the whole vow of chastity thing became a reality <laughs> that I couldn't live with. But, you know, I mean, I, I, I have a religious fervor about this kind of work because I, it, it's not just about me, it's about my family and it's about the future of the planet that we all depend on. What's interesting is the picture you paint there too is is one of community connection. It's not just about the planet. It's not just about the water or the tree. It's about the individuals, the people that connect with one another. And I think that that's a uniqueness. We hinted at it earlier. Your membership is kind of breaks the mold of partisanship these days. And in particular, it probably does more, even more than that, where you've got folks who might, from a stereotype perspective, not be environmentalists, and yet they're the champions in some regard of their conservation in their communities. And I think it's important to kind of recognize how unique it is that you found this space to connect people and to bridge the highly partisan atmosphere that we all you know, face every day. It's, it's really inspiring to me that you know, you've been able to do that. Yeah, thanks, Connor. I mean, I, I think there's a reason for that too. You know, we may have talked about this once before, but conservation is a tough game. As conservationists, what we do is we oversee loss, to be realistic. Loss of wetlands, loss of forests, loss of open space, loss of native species, loss of clean water. <laughs> I could go on. And it is not surprising given that reality that many in our space become a little bit disconsolate. They become defeatist. And I remember there's a, my hero is a man named Aldo Leopold, who was a conservationist from Wisconsin who worked for the U.S. Forest Service and talked about this idea of an American land ethic, which we're very much trying to perpetuate today. And, and he had a quote where he famously said that one of the penalties of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. And an ecologist must either be, must either ignore the consequences of science or he must be the doctor who sees the marks of death in a community that believes itself well and doesn't want to be told otherwise. And so that's the reality that we live with as conservationists. The difference though, between Trout Unlimited and, and other advocates is that many of us, not all of us, are also anglers. And anglers, people who fish, are inveterate optimists. There is not one of us who, on the last cast of the day, when we're already an hour late for dinner, isn't supremely confident that we're gonna catch the largest fish of, our, of the day or of our lives. So I think it's that sense of optimism and joy that many of our staff and volunteers bring to their work. And I think it's infectious and I think it helps to transcend political divides. Yep. I was curious where the term optimist came from in your Twitter biography. So now I'm glad I got the explanation. I think it makes a ton of sense. 
I ask a lot of folks, you know, how do we kind of retain our optimism and our hope and uh, in the face of headlines that sometimes just feel, you know, dark? I am a long-suffering New York Mets fan. <laughs> and I liken it to the 1986 World Series in Game 6 against the Boston Red Sox, which was the last time the Mets, sadly, have won the World Series. But there were two outs in the bottom of the ninth inning, and there were, I think it was six batters who got up, and I think five of them had two strikes for the Mets. And it was, the sequence was a single, a single, a single, a pass ball, a single, and an error, and they won the game. And that's what we try to do every day by by showing up in conservative communities, by trying to engage diverse communities, whether it's indigenous people or communities of color, we're just trying to put runners on base. We're trying to build relationships in local communities with conservative county commissioners. So when they see our guy out in you know, Medford, Oregon, come and approach him, they're gonna say, you know, I've had coffee with John five times over the past year. He's a good guy, Susie's a great gal, you know, they're bringing farmers together who want to help to, you know, diminish erosion and increase their property values. You know, I'm going to help to you with this zoning ordinance that they want to do. It's like you can break through the chatter if you spend the time putting runners on base. And yeah. that's, you know, basically what we do. Where can folks learn more? Where can folks sign up? Where can folks get involved in their local chapters? Uh, thanks, Connor. They can go to tu.org. And you can uh, become a member there very easily. You won't be surprised. We make it easy for people to support the organization. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks to Chris for this great conversation. Consensus and Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode is produced by Will Gatchel and Jeff Rock. Executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker and strategist Patrick Gallagher. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. See you next week.